Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This is Carrie Peffley. I teach in the philosophy department here at Bethel. And I'm Anne-Marie Koistra. I teach in the history department. And today we're joined by Eric Leifblad, who's a professor in biblical and theological studies. He's a professor of missional ministries, and he'll be talking to us about the church as mission, especially early on, amongst other things. Thanks for joining us. We are joined by Dr. Eric Leifblad. Not doctor yet. Do- not doctor yet. Sorry, Getting I forget. Close. It's so this close. Semester, it's so close. And we are going to talk about some early church stuff, maybe talk a little bit about Augustine. How do you like to say? I say Augustine. Yeah, I Augustine. Know if, I don't know if that's right. So just for the record, I will say Augustine, okay. and then the smarter people in the room can say Augustine. And I, you'll just have to deal with that. Augie? Ooh, I like that. Could I could go with Augie. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what would you like to talk about today, Eric Leifblad? Um... There was, a, there was a lot in that lecture that There was gave. a lot in that lecture. And actually, first, can you just give us a brief synopsis oh, of idea. the lecture of and the what lecture. we're going to be discussing? Sure. So one of the things that I think I was trying to do in that lecture was to set up um, a theological rationale or a theological reason for understanding the early church in relationship to culture. Um, not so much because, like, they're historical people, who they are or they were, um, and they lived in a culture. But, like, part of the reason culture becomes a really important question for Christianity and the development of Christian theology is because they understood themselves as a, a kind of missionary people. So, it, in a sense, it's it's a, a kind of – like, the Spirit sort of calls them to cross boundaries as sort of the defining – one of the defining aspects of who they are. And um, so I think that perennially we have to always wrestle with the question of culture as Christians um, because that is sort of in our DNA. Okay, so students will be reading these two chapters from the Olson book dealing with the development of the concepts of Trinity and Triunity. Yep. And then they will also be looking at this question about how we understand who Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. was. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about how these interactions with culture help to shape, help to shape that. those specific yeah, ideas? Actually, this is, I think, um, maybe like I, at the risk of like oversimplifying everything. I think if our, if we could, if our students could get one thing from reading Olson in conjunction with my lecture, it's that doctrinal development is not it is very intellectual. They draw yeah. on richly on the the intellectual imagination of the sort of the Roman Greco Roman world. They use Greek philosophical concepts, mm-hmm. but it is not. It's not an intellectual enterprise. It is. It is about. Um, it arises from this dynamic of culture and Christianity. Like the only, so like, and, and along with that, I mean, I'm getting, I said simply and now I'm like rambling, <laughs> but along with that, I, I hope also, and this is a weird way of putting it, and, but th- I hope there's a sense in which there's also some generosity afforded to all the various heretics that mm-hmm. they're going to encounter. Oh, sure. Because really the heretics, like Arius, for instance, regarding the, you know, 
early triune development, Arius didn't set out to say, like, I'm going to set myself against what's going to become Orthodox right. teaching. Yeah. Arius was trying to figure out in his world, how do we make sense of this unique claim about Jesus, the experience of the apostles with Jesus in and through the spirit? Like, this was a guy. This was a man. How, right. like, we have to figure that out. And Arius was doing his best, I think, with the categories that he had to do it to make sense of that. And he, in the, in sort of the wisdom of the tradition, he erred in that, but he wasn't setting out to be a, a, a sort of a contrarian. In fact, Arius in his time was actually more widely accepted than Athanasius, mm -hmm. who is in more ways the contrarian. He's the one who drove a stake in the ground and said, yes, no. Did. Mm -hmm. No, like you can't do this. Right. Uh, and everyone was like, yeah, but Arius makes sense. And Athanasius was like, no, we lose the gospel if we go this mm -hmm. route. Right. But he was the contrarian, not Arius. Right. Um, so I, I think I think the question of how you engage culture is not a question you do in the abstract. It's something that happens constantly, perpetually. That's what I hope they get from the lecture. And I hope mm -hmm. they see that through the doctrinal development, too, is that e even into the 21st century. So Olson talks about Karl Barth, for instance, right. and the way that Barth translates homoousianas uh, or hypostasis as modes of being, right. which is a weird way of thinking about it. But he's trying to think as a modern theologian in ancient categories. Mm -hmm. That's the issue of culture. How do we appropriate thoughts, philosophical concepts, theological concepts in our time, in our place, in our way that's, that doesn't move us away from the stream of tradition, but also um, allows us to swim in our own way within mm -hmm. that stream. Yeah. You talked yesterday about Philo of Alexandria and the way that Jewish culture was also appropriating various aspects of yep. other cultures, the philosophical tradition. Can you talk a little bit more about Philo of Alexandria? Uh, <laughs> I love I love Philo. Uh, why don't you talk about Philo? <laughs> I know Gary, Philo you know? <laughs> at such a surface level. I know that he was an important sort of um, well, contemporary, but that's about. So I just think the, the, the Alexandrian school is a super interesting yeah. uh, sort of melting pot of Jewish Christian pagan yeah. culture because you've got I think you also mentioned Clement of Alexandria yesterday yep. um, right so a great church father then you've got Philo of Alexandria a Jewish philosopher but some some people actually call him the, the founder of Western Christian phil philosophy yeah. because he's oh. he's using categories in a way that Christian philosophers will follow. Yep. But then you also have Plotinus and Porphyry, yep. these great pagan philosophers. So I just think often about the way in which all of those ideal ideas were influencing each other. Yeah, I mean, Alexandria is like a, a, an incredibly sort of cosmopolitan mm -hmm. place in the ancient world. And it, it like in Christian history, there's sort of two centers. Uh, that's not really fair. There's really tons of centers. But the two that become talked about are Antioch and Alexandria. Right. And Alexandria is, I think, the more germane uh, comparative context mm -hmm. for where we are in North America. It's a, an immense melting pot of ideas yep. and very much influential on Christian doctrinal development. Antioch's yeah. a little bit more focused on... Um, yeah, so in, uh, Antioch's a little bit more sort of using the categories I use in the lecture. It's a little bit more... Palestinian sort of mm, sure um, but uh, like maybe a way to think about that Alexandria is typically referred to at least in church history as like they're thinking of 
things from above. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a, a platonic sense yeah. if we want to stay in our humanities categories. And Antioch is more from below, trying to think of Jesus in relationship mm-hmm. to his humanity, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. And so you need these two schools for right. cr- Christian development, but you also have to, or hopefully what you're recognizing in that is there's two sort of cultural contexts that are developing side by side and in, inter- in interaction with one another, not always friendly. Sometimes they punched each other. Right. Uh, like mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. Um, like St. Nicholas, right? He punched Arius in the face, supposedly. Yep. yep. And Cyril <laughs> Cyril was known to get into it a little bit too later on. Um, so the, the whole point is is that like these cultural centers are the, the places in which Christian theology is working itself out, both in parallel, in tandem, and sometimes against one another. And mm-hmm. that, it's uh, and so maybe like if we were to sort of apply that to our context, we might get into these contests of like who's right who's wrong um that person's liberal that person's conservative that person's liberal that person's fundamentalist Mm -hmm. and it's like well sure but if like that that's kind of always been going on Mm -hmm. in our faith like Mm -hmm. these battles or maybe not even think of them as battles but these contests over right belief have sort of always been going on and there there I'm what I'm not saying is that there's not a center there is like there like you're not you don't you aren't just able to say whatever you want to say mm-hmm. but that contest really is at the heart I think of mm-hmm. Christian theology mm-hmm. well I'm going to just state something obvious but I think when I come back to the early church and I even when I was hearing your lecture and reading some of the material that we're reading for the next two class periods with our students I think I think of Christianity often so much as Western, mm-hmm. whereas what your lecture and the materials helped for me is to sort of really place it in a much more cosmopolitan and almost global. I mean, it was mm-hmm. part yeah. of the global world. I mean, so these conversations are happening in North Africa. They're happening in Greece. Um, there's a big divide between the folks who speak Latin and the folks who do the, the Greek. Absolutely. And that plays a big role in even this question about how we understand the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's very interesting. It is. And even like within, like to your point, there's Greek speaking, there's Latin speaking. Um, a little bit later, there's going to be Eng- English speaking. Right. Mm-hmm. Like even so, even within the what we call the Western context, there's Christianities. Yeah, there's right, not Christianity. Right. There's multiple Christianities, right. and that's not even to say anything about the fact that there are missionaries that go east. Right, mm-hmm. and we don't. So far as I well, when I was a student here, we never talked about mm-hmm. those. We okay. never talked about the fact that there has been Christianity in parts of Asia since the third, fourth century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oftentimes what in Western eyes are heretical forms because right. if you're a heretic, where do you go? Well, you get away from the folks that think you're heretics and right. you go somewhere else. Um, right. But I don't think that's the reason we don't talk about them. I think it's mm. just we've sort of excised them from our memory. But now in the globalized world that we live in, we're discovering, holy crap, there's <laughs> folks, there's traditions that have been around way longer than we right. have that have been practicing Christian. There's churches, for instance, in parts of the Middle East that have been around since like the 8th century. Right. And I think that's helpful to know mm-hmm. because part of, too, what's going on is you've got a group of people who are trying to understand something that is, like, by definition, beyond human comprehension. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to do that through different languages, different cultural experiences. And we're still trying to do that, yep. as mm-hmm. you said. So yep. I think that's really something helpful to keep in mind as yeah. we talk about yeah. things like Trinity and monotheism and Jesus yep. Christ and divinity and 
humanness, etc. So there's a great missiologist um, that's just somebody who studies like missionary history and missionary thought uh, named Laman Sana, and he was oh, yeah. at, he ended up at Yale University. But he he sort of argues, and and I find him really convincing that. The best way to understand Christianity and perhaps like the essence of Christianity is its translatability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what if, – if you really look at doctrinal development, church history, that is what you see is just a robust sense that these concepts have to be translated. Not – don't just accidentally get translated, mm-hmm. but it's a necessary condition of the Christian faith that they have to be translated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that could bring us back nicely to Clement of Alexandria because he seems to say that – God himself, God, God self speaks in this translatable way. And so Clement actually claims that maybe God inspired Plato and Aristotle in the same way sure. that God inspired Moses and right. Isaiah, right. that God speaks to people in whatever way they understood. And the Jews understood the world through the law. And the Greeks understood through philosophy. So why wouldn't God speak to us in an eminently translatable way? Right. Well, in the the notion of logos Christology or like the word, the rational sort Mm -hmm. of principle of God, that gets really developed by John's gospel in particular. But that is a kind of translational idea is that Mm -hmm. like God is translating God's self into the world. And ultimately one of the sort of easily the most contentious issue was the divinity of Jesus. How do we understand, in a sense, God's own translation of God's self to right. us yeah. and through Jesus? Mm-hmm. And that becomes virtually every ecumenical council or gathering of church leaders in the first five centuries, four centuries, is wrestling that out. Mm-hmm. Well, and just as a fun aside, if you're interested in the kind of things that Carrie was talking about in terms of different people who look to Plato and Socrates as mm-hmm sort of precursors of Christian thought, um, I'd invite you to check out the Humanities Hymn um, on the blog. So <laughs> Percy Dermer. So there you go. Oh, that's right. Oh, yes, yeah. A hymn about. Yes. Thanking God for mm-hmm. the people who point the way from the Greek culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, do we do we want to talk about Augie a little bit? We should bit? talk about Augie. Oh, yeah. That's so right. First of all, uh, a little like overview of the of, Confessions. Uh, the Confessions is... I think really one of the five greatest texts ever written. Oh my! Uh, I I I think it resonates. Um, it, it's not. I mean, it's ancient, so it's not written for us. But it is, in a certain sense, written for us in the 21st century. And what I mean by that is Augustine, Augie, Augustine, however you want to talk about him. Um, he he's one of the first people to sort of turn inward or go interior right. to figure out essentially like what is this whole thing about yeah and he uses tons of different philosophical schools and experiences yep. uh, embodied experiences to do that i think it's unfair to talk of him as a disembodied person i don't think he's as dualistic as some folks mm-hmm. read him and the confessions is the reason why he all he does is talk about his bodily experiences mm-hmm. at various points now he's not always happy with what he does with his <laughs> right. body but that's a different conversation um but I think what makes the confession so good is that it's been my experience that Bethel students and college students in general are obsessed with self-reflection, sometimes bad, but usually good. They're existentialists, whether they know it or not, right? And I think 
that's essentially what the confessions is about trying mm. to figure out who am i who who's my mom in relationship to mm-hmm. me like there's so much in augustine's confessions that that maps onto our world even though it's an ancient text um and i i think it should be required reading in every university on every campus in the western world and why do you think that um because i think augustine follows the path of matter uh modern meaning and identity making interesting um this this is an argument that uh james smith from calvin Mm, college oh yeah Mm -hmm. my alma mater um and he sort of sees in augustine a saint for what charles taylor calls a secular age Mm -hmm. where we don't really know what to believe because there's all these contesting beliefs pulling for us and Augustine sort of embodies that. He tried out so many different things. Right. And in a certain sense, all of those things still lived in him, and he made sense of them through his Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think David Brooks has even been a big fan yeah. of mm-hmm. the confessions mm-hmm. and as a way of thinking about your life and thinking about what it is that you're meant to do and mm-hmm. um, thinking about virtue and all sorts of other things. Right. So I think I think David Brooks would echo, echo you on right. that sentiment. So right. you're in good company, yeah. um, Eric Liefblad. Carrie's yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. laughing at me. <laughs> yes. Um, there are, I like that even Augustine himself seems to be willing to play around with all of these different ideas and seems to reflect on like three different conversions in his life. Right. So that he's testing out ideas, um, going for continuing to ask these questions that certain people refuse to answer or left partially unanswered and continuing to push farther and farther. Right. And we can see that all the way throughout the Augustines. Right. There's a sense in Augustine that one need not fear any idea mm-hmm. because of in a sense because of because of where it it has led him like there's mm-hmm. and this this makes some folks bristle there's a robust sense of providence in augustine mm-hmm. um like augie is convinced that god's going to get god's way mm-hmm. with us yeah um and i think we read that or we hear that sometimes it's like, ooh, so I don't have any say in anything. That's not what he means. I think he's just, I think he's using that idea as a, a groundwork or a framework or a foundation to be able to say, so f- use anything and everything that can orient you mm-hmm. rightly towards God. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I would say too, what I appreciate about Augustine or Augie um, is kind of the point that you made earlier that he is a very embodied person and so it's not just about his mind i really read his confessions as a story of god wooing him mm-hmm. i mean and woo and i mean that yeah. deliberately yep. like he is allured by god's sweetness mm-hmm. and that's just an interesting um quality and a word to describe God. And it's one that comes through in so many of the other folks that we read. I'm thinking about Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. talking about God's sweetness, but he's not the only one. Right. right. And so yeah. I appreciate that quality mm-hmm. in Augie. Yeah. And the moment where Augustine converts to this Neoplatonic Christianity is a mystical moment, it right? Is. Which is described in deeply embodied terms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, he's not a Gnostic. He's not rejecting right. the bodily. Right. So one of our former students, uh, Abby Stocker, was uh, back in town a few years ago or maybe weeks ago. No, she wasn't weeks ago. But she was uh, telling me about a book that was written by Suzanne Wolfe, The Confessions of X. And it's actually 
the confession of Augie's common-law wife. Hmm. So it's written from her perspective and the way she experiences the life of Augustine. So just as a, you know, if you're interested in the other yeah, side. Which yeah, which is interesting because we do sort of uh, venerate and lionize Augie. Um, but he also sort of just gave up on other parts of his life yeah. that we might not want him to give up on, like his wife and Kid, uh, kind kids. Of. And yeah, mm-hmm. he kind of goes after... It's interesting that for him to be rightly ordered towards God meant sort of what I would argue is sort of like not rightly ordered towards his family. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in some ways, though, aren't there connections to the Aeneid in this respect, yeah, right? right? Like, uh, I, yeah. it's very interesting, yeah. this sense of duty. Like, again, going back to the point that Rushika Haig made, right, that in order for us to really feel the duty, like, we have to give up the one. And so, like, that's a very oh, that's interesting a, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm parallel through both of these journeys toward god yeah Mm -hmm. and we'll get a third journey toward god in dante and again involving a woman yeah yeah yeah. so that's interesting Mm -hmm. Hmm. i'm not sure what to say about that but i just said (laughs) we'll come back to it later come back to that um should we ask about other books Mm mm-hmm other books that you, I mean, so I mentioned Suzanne Wolf's book. Um, are there other books that people who like Augustine might enjoy reading? Yeah. So Jamie Smith has a new one out on the road with St. Augustine. Oh. Really good. Hmm. Um, you do find time to read. It's just not for pleasure. Or well, going back to the early No, it's pleasurable. I just okay. like, I love reading. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I just like music a lot. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. We'll get so, to that. We'll get to that. Um, so that's a good one. Um I guess if one is really inclined to dig deep into Augie, uh, Peter Brown's uh, biography. That always comes up. It's, it's a tome. Yeah, I mean, it's huge, yep. but it is the, you know, the definitive work on Augie. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a is it a page turner? Uh, it's a Peter Brown book, so no. Nope. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really well done. But, I mean, for those that are sort of really geeky and want to get into, like, the 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 sort of you know standard text sure maybe they need would. a book for lent yeah or advent both times <laughs> right an aesthetic to... practice of reading right um uh i mean david brooks's chapter on augie is okay uh, okay that's why i was laughing already. yeah it's yeah. It, I, I it's it's fine um it's a good introduction i think um secondary well so uh, Jamie Smith has another book, and I actually disagree with Jamie a lot, so I'm shocked I'm recommending him so much. But he has another book called You Are What You Love, which is sort of an Augustinian way of thinking about um, habit and virtue. Yeah. And um, so he does a lot with he, – he, he, he sort of reads – I think he kind of reads Aristotle into oh. Augie in that book in a weird sort for of you, way. Carrie. Yeah, um, it's for me. Not entirely, but a little bit. So that that'd be another one that I'd point you to. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, so what are you listening to these days? What am I listening to these days? Um, well, so Justin Towns Earl, like an Americana rocker, he's got a new album out that I've been listening to. Uh he's got a show coming up in town. Oh. Um that's been heavy on my playlist. And then the high women. Uh so this is like a country but like real country, not pop country on the radio. Like uh, 
it's like a super group. Um, Brandy Carlisle's at the mm. front of it. Okay. And uh, there was an old group of, I think it was like, uh, Johnny Way- Cash. Yeah, Johnny Cash, yeah. Waylon Jennings. I know. I gotcha. Um, uh, the high high men. Highway yeah, Highway Men. Yeah. Bob so Dylan, is, I think, was even part of that, wasn't yeah, I think he? So. Oh, yeah. And so that this is like the response to that, and it's just it's a beautiful album. Mm. Um, cool. There's a song on it. I think actually Chris blogged about it. Chris Scarce blogged about it. There's a song on it that's mm. that's really powerful that sort of talks about all these women that were sort of churned up and eaten up by historical oppressive forces, but they sort of live in they live in perpetuity in and through the people that they impacted. Love Interesting. That. So it's a really yeah. kind of powerful powerful mm-hmm. group it, and it's awesome music all so, right yeah do you have are you reading anything for fun um last time i felt like i shouldn't even have asked that yeah, question no i i am i read uh well i guess there's a baked in assumption that i have that like if it's fun it's not intellectually stimulating but that's silly right. um i let's see i just finished um I can't remember the title of it, but it's Miroslav Volf's newest one on, like, sort of the place of theology in the world, hmm. and it was pretty fun. Um, he's got his hand on his temple <laughs> as he's thinking yeah, it over. Yeah, um, I I also James Cone's autobiography was really fun oh. too. James Cone's a Black Liberation mm-hmm. theologian, and that was really powerful because, in a certain sense, it connects. Like he. He really, uh, so he, he did a PhD and, and wrote his doctoral dissertation on BART, but then as a black American realized, like, he's got to translate this into mm-hmm. the experience yeah. of black America. And yeah. so, in, in a sense, invented a theological category. Um, hmm. and it's a, his autobiography is kind of a, a really profound retelling of his kind of, conversion to becoming a black liberation theologian is really powerful there you go a couple of Mm -hmm. conversion stories Mm -hmm. for you carrie you reading anything for fun i'm still reading a little bit of fever pitch sure entertaining very very fluffy well that's all right and i'm reading reading. the peloponneid by margaret atwood since there is a play version of that coming to which we will be going to see yeah so this is the story of penelope obviously um telling about her experience with um odysseus Mm -hmm. and other things Nice. Very exciting. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thank Mm -hmm. you. This has been Bookish at Bethel. Mm -hmm.